Welcome to the the LSI Behind the Wind podcast. My name is Sean Slatter, and for 30 years, I've dedicated my life to the science of business development. I've seen the impact of our work, which has evolved into economic development and now social impact. Today, I have asked Josh Johnson to join me again to talk about the recently enacted Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. It was signed into law uh, by the president on the 15th of November, and it is huge. And it's going to be a, a huge opportunity for business development in some certain areas tied to infrastructure. I think the total on this act for funding was over $1.2 trillion. It's one of the largest acts in, in history, and it really is going to impact a lot of our work over the next few years. And uh, I think it's a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity for companies to capture a piece of this $1.2 trillion workload. So, as I said, I've asked Josh to join me and discuss some strategies for this opportunity. And Josh had joined me early on in in this series. Josh has an interesting history spending over 20 years in the Congress. He had 10 years serving in the House and 10 years serving in the Senate and has been working a lot of congressional initiatives and policy work for us, including leading our legislative strategy and tying all of that to business development. So, Josh, thanks for being with me again this morning. Do you want to just, before we talk about this new act, just give another quick background on you and your career? Sure. Thanks for having me today. So as, as Sean, as you stated, I spent close to tw- you know 20 years up in the Congress, of which I did focus a lot on infrastructure. And so a lot of the positions I held were on committees authorizing side that were authorizing infrastructure projects in the water sector, energy sector. And then there was a crossover with uh, defense-related projects that were more on islanding of military facilities and how do you ensure that they can operate in times of disaster or when issues occur with uh, their infrastructure, particularly on the power side. And so this bill is uh, a bill that I know many folks are interested in finding out more about and also how do they go about getting the money that's being allocated. So it's a pleasure to be here. And Josh, you wrote a lot of legislation during your 20 years in the Congress, I mean, have you ever seen anything like this $1.3 trillion, which is, and, and the reality of it is it, it is a follow-on to the $2.3 trillion plan that the president rolled out in March. And so we, we've been, you and I have been talking about this for more than six months now, anticipating this was going to happen. It finally did on the 15th of November of this year, 2021. Have you ever seen any kind of legislation that that is even close to this in, in your 
25 year, 30 year history of working with the Congress? Yeah, I think the, the closest came when we did have in the, in the latter part of the early 2000s, when we were starting to see a lot of issues associated with the economy occurring and the, those stimulus packages that were occurring over those years. But it really is for infrastructure, an area that we haven't seen. And there's been a need for years to address a lot of the infrastructure related issues. So if you look at it from both the so on the authorizing side, as many are aware, the Congress has all these committees that authorize the, the government to spend money. The challenge is you can have something authorized and everybody can get excited, but there's no dollars put to it. So what these acts that we're seeing coming through are doing are pushing money to actually build what either has been authorized or projects that have uh, have a history. And so what I would what I always recommend on this these types of projects are anything out there that people have done initial studies on that have some early framework or even the more the the better. I mean, as the last time we did this, you know, going back many years, what occurred is basically all these projects that had had studies done were the first in line to get funding because they had already spent the time and to do it. So just to, as people listen to this, there are, I would really start to pull together all the projects, whether they're you know city, state, whatever they might be, and start to get them in order so that when these fundings come out, that they have documentation and are ready to start to put jobs in place. That's what they're looking for on these types of acts. So this is a very complex program, and we're going to walk through this try to break it down so that if you are the business development lead for your company or you're looking at how as a government entity, either a state or municipal entity, how you're going to play into this because it really is going to be a lot of public and private workload in the implementation of this act. And I think what, uh, I mean, talk about for a minute, your assessment of now that the act has been signed by the president, there's going to be a lot of decisions made on what agencies are going to manage and have oversight for these initiatives. And I, as you and I have talked about for months, it, this really is going to be one of those acts that all of the agencies are going to touch. It's going to go into the Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, Department of Transportation, Department of Labor, Health and Human Services. I mean, there is going to be a lot of agencies that are going to receive funding and be working oversight and implementation for these programs. Do you want to talk about that for just a second? Sure. So on this, you have to always remember that it is infrastructure monies, but it's jobs as well. So again, as people start to think about how they're going to go get this, they really have to have their, you know, what the direction they want to be going and have, can show how that's going to lead to improvements in a variety of policy areas, but also 
in jobs. And so I'll just kind of walk through some of the numbers. And I and I hate to throw out a lot of numbers, but no, I think it's helpful. I think, for- I think what, what you've done in this analysis of the bill and then now the act is is critical because it's so complex and such a $1.3 trillion. This is, this is, it's incredible. Yeah. Let's, what you're so good at, Josh, is breaking down these complex acts into some buckets. So if you look at that number, let's start out with the 1.2 trillion. So that is a number that they're using over the next 10 years of the investment that's going to be going out under this act. And so Breaking that down a little further, 550 billion will be in new spending. And new spending is always hard to to get authorized as well as put out. So it's a large amount of money that's going for new projects that are out there. So when you say what pots of money and where it's gonna be going, you can break it down that, that basically over the next five years, the 550 billion that they're looking in new spending that about half of it's going to go to surface transportation. So in this case, it's going to be close to 280 plus million dollars, a billion dollars, sorry. And then infrastructure, the core infrastructure is 266 billion. And we'll break that down a little more. So if you're thinking of what is that, when we talk transportation, what are, you know, the $284 billion, it entails several areas. And so that includes roads, bridges, and major projects, which a lot of folks are familiar with, kind of that surface transportation. $110 billion is in the roads, bridges, and and projects. So that's about 10%, 10% of the total spending and 20% of the new spending is just going to roads and bridges. So traditional civil engineering projects. Yeah. And that's over the next five years. So the five years, I'm only doing the first five year horizon. So the numbers, uh, so if we look at what I'm going to be providing, it's really just this first five years, which is a little easier to anticipate with, you know, things going on and changes. So yes, that's a hundred of the 284 going for the basic, you know, what we understand transportation, 66 billion is for passenger and freight rail. So for those states that have a pretty robust system in place and are looking at new you know, areas to focus on, that's gonna be the bulk of that. 42 billion for airports, ports, and waterways. And then 39 billion for public transit. And then you get into some policy related issues. Well, granted, most of, a lot of this is policy. When you talk about rails, you talk about public transit, you have also electric vehicles. And so there's an opportunity here for folks who are interested in improving the infrastructure as it relates to electric vehicle infrastructure, buses and transit. So there's you know a priority with this administration to focus in on that. And there's $15 billion set aside for projects dealing with that. And then you just have you know another pot, which is on safety, which we can get a little more into. And that's you know, safe streets, you know, community crashes and fatalities. I mean, it gets into, again, these are more policy related issues, but that's the extent right now that we're looking at as transportation. Now, when we talk core infrastructure, this is getting more into the water environment, energy and broadband. 
So that's 266 billion, again, looking over this horizon of five years. So they're estimating that it's gonna be about 73 billion for power infrastructure and grid automation. So that's, you know, improving, you know, the electricity to a variety of communities, to rural areas, making sure that the grid has its protections in place, et cetera. And also how do you go about integrating renewable energy into the system, which is always a challenge is many cases where you have capability for renewable energy, you don't necessarily have a lot of people in those areas or it's generated at times in which you don't really need it. You need it in times in which, you know, so for example, wind, a lot of it's generated at night, you need it during the day. So how do you start to address these inconsistencies to ensure that you can start to place these renewable energy loads into the system and not cause challenges as well as potentially uh, battery storage to allow for, you know, savings of the power. An example would be when you look at a lot of the river systems are run where they are releasing from the facilities during the day for power generation. And at nighttime, they want to, you know, they're releasing, they're pumping back into the systems in order for the next day to be able to release water back into the system as well to generate energy. So, so those are uh, issues that are going to be found within this. There is going to be a lot for broadband. And so when $65 billion is what they're anticipating, and that's of course on how do you get infrastructure to everybody or as much as they can, you know, recognizing the amount, making sure that it's cost effective, that people can afford to, to take what they get. Most of the areas that don't have it don't necessarily, uh, are not necessarily areas where folks have the income to put it to them or maybe not even the amounts to pay for it once it's there. And so that's where you get into a variety of the challenges of how do you get everybody connected and particularly these underserved areas. And, and I, if I recall, this presidency has indicated that 65% or more than half of it's going to go to underserved areas, which again, we can get into at a later time where more than half of that money is going to go to is, is considered a, these underserved areas, which have their own formulas on what that means. So that's the broadband side. Then you get into water infrastructure. And again, so when people think of this, it's just not transportation. This is an infrastructure bill. So some of these areas, people might not think at first that are important, but they tie to every state, city, you know, locality out there. Water infrastructure is about 55 billion. Wow. And that's going to go to, you have a whole issue with lead pipes that's yeah. in, in areas. Again, some of these are policy. Remember, a lot of some of these have policy directives in there. So there have been concerns in certain urban areas that they have a variety of lead pipe related issues. And they also have issues associated with how some of these state result revolving funds are being allocated to states to address their infrastructure. So that, you know, think of it as more going to localities and states to then distribute to fix some of their related issues. Now, a word that you're going to hear a lot with this administration, and it's been building over the past, I'd say 10 years, but a lot of their focus is on what they call resiliency. And in this case, they're calling it environmental resiliency, $47 billion to go to that. And what that means is kind of what I spoke about earlier. One of my jobs in the Congress was 
how do you ensure that a military facility, if it has a power outage, could stay on for longer than the diesel power that they have to fill their generators? Or how do you ensure that you, you don't, you're not going to have a cyber attack that's going to impact the facility? And so these monies, although they're called environmental resiliency, are looking at ensuring that infrastructure is protected from cyber attacks. So for clients who have cyber-related capabilities, and also from storms and you know other natural disasters that may occur. Now, they would argue in this case that it's climate change, but the broad category is called environmental resiliency. I think it's really interesting and, and something that will pay huge dividends as we start to reduce our dependency upon you know, moving, you know, having power that's available in the locality always, rather than depending upon power, in this case, fuels being brought into communities or generators being brought into communities to bring them back up once a disaster uh, hits. And then finally, under this, you just have a, uh, they call it environmental remediation, which includes super funds. So uh, if I recall, I think it's about 1200 sites that need money to address legacy pollution issues. In many cases, these are in areas that are underserved areas or in areas where it's starting to impact, well, has impacted the water as well as the usable land. So that's, those are the two main areas, again, the core infrastructure and then the transportation dollars, which equate up to that. Josh, that was fantastic. That was such a great summary of this very complex act. Maybe, let, let me see if I can summarize this. So what you talked about in my mind, and, and maybe you can push back on this a little bit, but in my mind, there's really four buckets, and maybe we can consolidate this even into three. So there's the traditional civil engineering work, which would be things like roads, bridges, rail, airports, port infrastructure, right? Uh So that's all traditional civil engineering. Did I miss anything? Yeah, I I think you're right. They do argue that electric vehicles would be put on infrastructure for that into that sector, but I see that as a a newer component, but they're putting that onto the traditional kind of the transportation spending, but it's, uh, you're, you're correct. That electric vehicles is just the oddity that, how do you go about that infrastructure with that? So then the second bucket I see is utilities, right? So it, it would be power infrastructure. You mentioned broadband, which is going to be huge. And then things like water. There's a lot of water, both policy and fiscal uh, appropriation tied to water, which this is one of your subject matter and specialties that uh, you you spent a lot of time working water issues. And I want to come back to that in a minute. I I want to come back to your history on water because you've got this uh, incredible background in water. But is that uh, what you see as well in this second bucket? So things like power infrastructure, grid modernization, you mentioned broadband, and then that climate climate umbrella, that okay. that resiliency. So I really like this. I think that if you're looking at projects, anytime you can build in, how do you make the funding be on utilities and, and kind of energy side, you know, using resiliency as a, as a positive that 
we can, whatever problem is there, we have the means to bring the grid up and ensure that it's not going to go down because of a cyber attack that you can island off, you know, the, the facility. So it's not bringing down the operations of that facility. And then the only other thing would be that the long-term environmental remediation issues that we face as a country because of decisions that were rightly made in many ways, but at the time not known how it would impact. Exactly. So the third bucket that you talked about is transportation, which pure transportation, not the civil engineering side, but the transportation such as rail, public transit, some things like you you mentioned transportation safety programs, right? So that I see that that is a, as a third bucket, right? And then I want to talk about this policy piece because maybe it's not a fourth category, but rather both government entities and the private sector needs to be incorporating this across whatever these projects are. And you you had mentioned policy. So things like all of the environmental resiliency, cyber electric vehicles, Would, would you see that as its own category? Or do you just think that that is actually incorporated into these three buckets of civil engineering, utilities, and transportation. So it is, what they're doing is weaving it into all of the funding criteria. And so, for example, they will say, this administration, that we need to upgrade roads and bridges to address climate change and resilience. And so we need more EV to address climate change. So you will see resiliency, uh, which could be in many cases, you know, you could say climate change, but resiliency has kind of been uh, something in which is caught on with a variety of people that they understand better what resiliency means than just saying climate change. So you're going to see a lot of that in those core buckets. Now, what's nice about that is when people are addressing projects is to look at that because that's going to be a, a requirement in almost any you know, issue is why we do mass transit. Well, to get cars off. Why are I mean, why are we doing rail? Why are we doing electric vehicles? Well, to, to use less fuel. Why are we doing public? You know, the public transit, the buses, etc. So you're going to see that as well as why do we care that I live? You know, to have renewable energy. Well, again, it's to reduce our use of different types of you know fossil fuel or you know fossil fuels, etc. So. I see that if you can look at an eye on all this funding, and that's been one of the criticisms of the bill by some is that it's directed a lot of policy ingrained into to how this is going to be, the money's going to be allocated. And it just comes down to it, I think, tying you know what people are doing with the, with the end state of being, why is this better for the community as a whole? And to recognize that those policy issues are going to be driven into into a majority of those decisions. Yeah, so there's a lot of interesting opportunities if you're both a a government entity, a state, municipal entity, and also if you are a a private sector entity. And and I'd I'd like to talk for a minute about some of these strategies, but before we do, let's look at each of these three buckets, again, really quickly, civil engineering, that's going to be traditional A&E, 
type work in construction. So there, there's a lot of engineering. And keep in mind that the objective of this act and the funding is job creation, right? So there's likely going to be a requirement to discuss if you're a public or a private entity, how many jobs are tied to these projects? How many people did you hire or did you, if you're a government entity, if you're a public entity, how many jobs were created as a result of this? Is You're seeing that as, as well? Is that what you're saying, Josh? Yeah, I think the narrative should always be that, you know, they have found that while these types of acts go through for during times when there's issues, you know, with folks out of work or folks that are needing, you know, communities needing money coming into them, that infrastructure projects are a quick way to put money doing something good, but also for the jobs. I do have a thought though, Sean, uh, you had mentioned the agencies. And I think it would be helpful. This might help to folks understand when you're talking about the full amount of money, who are the major agencies? So if we're looking at that, you know, going the first five years, the bulk of that money is going to go to the Department of Transportation. So about almost, you know, like $270 million, a billion dollars. Of that, just to give you an idea, there are monies that go out as a grant formula that states get monies based upon a formula. And it doesn't change much. And it just goes to every state based on a formula. But more money is going to be going under this for grants in a competitive basis than under grant formulas to states. And so there's gonna be a lot of opportunity of these competitive grants that are gonna be going out more so than just your traditional funding. So that's the Department of Transportation though. EPA is the second largest. So you go from 274 billion for those transportation related projects down to $67 billion, which is the EPA, of which the bulk of that money is grants formula based. So there are some competitive grants that are going to be in the term, you know, you know, say $12, $13 billion, but the bulk of that $67 billion is just going to go automatically to states and or under, under formulas, I should say, how that will be allocated. And then from there you have, so yeah, you drop. Let me interrupt you, Josh. Okay, go ahead. Uh-huh. Sorry, let me interrupt you. And, and so the, the process of this is now that the act has been passed, it's the working with the various committees, the Department of Treasury will take this $1.2 trillion and start pushing it to the major agencies. And I know it's still early in, in this, but will the agencies then push that money to the state and municipal entities? Or it's probably more likely that these entities will be required to submit a proposal for these grants that the agency will push. Is that your assessment as well? Yeah. So that's going to be, it'll be interesting when they, when they tie that in. So as you described, for example, grants give, are going to be likely given to state and local governments, you know, based on formulas. And, and then will, that, be, will uh, that will come out of Department of Transportation and DOD and HHS and DOL, right? Or yeah, okay. So yeah, so each agency will have a mechanism to 
to send their formula-based grants and then their competitive-based grants. And again, the agencies that you described, really the major, you know, the major players, Department of Transportation, but EPA and DOE are about the, are, are similar in many ways on amounts, but not on how it's to be allocated. DOE, Department of Energy is about 63 billion. A lot of the resiliency, renewable energy type related work is gonna go out of the Department of Energy under competitive grants. And so when I say competitive grants, these are gonna be awarded potentially likely to states and local governments. And then, uh, you know, that on a competitive, you know, competitively. So these communities and states are gonna be applying for this as well as depending on what other types of organizations can go after it to then either to win it and then bid it out to do the work that they want or, so the, those are the requirements that will be state driven. When you get down to Department of Commerce, a lot of that money is just, again, it's just going to states to then spend under their formula base. So like $51 billion is going to commerce, but there's not going to be a lot of new, I don't want to say new approaches, but where it's going to be competitive grants. When you get into the Department of Interior, you know, you're doing $28 billion. And so there's a lot of work that's going to be, you know, grants competitives as well as for example, the Department of Homeland Security is is a little more than half is going to go for grants, competitive grants, and that's only eight billion dollars. So, if you're looking at agencies to really focus in on, it's going to be those: the Department of Transportation, EPA, Department of Energy, Department of Commerce, and Department of Interior. And you know, you're throwing this out. Yeah, it's only twenty-eight billion. It's only eight billion. It's, yeah. I mean, those were major programs, those were major funding opportunities two years ago. And now we're talking about it like, oh, well, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> well, it's only $28 billion. But uh, okay, so the primary customer, when you're looking, if you're, if you're a public entity or a private entity and you're looking at capture, who is your customer? The primary customer that you need to be focused on in your capture strategy and building out your capture plan, the primary entities will be Department of Transportation, you think EPA next, right? Yeah, and Department of Energy. DOE, Department of Energy, Commerce maybe, or do you think Commerce is secondary? Well, the thing that's going to be interesting is because the states are going to be receiving these grants purely based, you know, for example, Department of Commerce, the bulk of that's just going directly to state governments to then allocate. So not on that, they are formula based for specific purposes. So those are having the relationships in the states and recognizing priorities of the states from both what they're currently getting their money to spend on, as well as uh, then going to this issue of competing with other states and localities for additional money. That's where uh, that that opens up these new lines of funding and projects that really you know start to open up doors for folks to be working with uh, the states or companies that can address the challenges that states are having or localities are having within these areas. And that's going to be based on kind of population size, you know, metrics, formulas, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So. A lot of those will have their own special requirements when they're open for competition in order to compete for. So we'll be having to keep a close eye on 
those competitive grants, how each of those agencies are, and programs are going to be pushing that money out as. Yeah, that's a great point. So this will be an interesting capture strategy and plan where you are looking at opportunities with federal entities, and then you're also going to be looking at state and municipal entities as well, based on where the funding goes. And I know you and your team track this meticulously during the CARES Act and all of the subsequent COVID funding, stimulus funding. What I loved about what, what you and your team was doing was at every phase, you were looking at what funding was being pushed from the treasury to what, what agencies, what federal agencies, and then what state entities as well. And so if anyone has an interest of what that funding looks like and the policy itself, we can help put that together. But I, I think that's a great point. Many organizations may have worked with municipal entities or have worked with state entities and not federal entities. And then I, I know that there's a lot of our clients and a lot of entities that have only worked with federal customers and never with state and municipal entities. And it's a very different strategy that I want to just talk about in a minute. This has been fantastic. So when you're looking at a capture strategy or capture plan, be thinking about the big customers are going to be Department of Transportation, EPA, Department of Energy, maybe Commerce and Department of Interior, and then the state and municipal entities collectively are going to have a huge piece of this. And then second, the, some of the secondary customers that we need to be looking at is Department of Defense, HHS. I you mean, could put in there health, health and human services will fall under that. They're going to be getting, DHS, you know. DHS. SBA is, I know, is part of Commerce. The FAA, you mentioned airports. So that would fall in ports in general. Airports and ports will fall under Commerce, I'm assuming. So, Sean, really quick, a thought for folks as, as well is, of the $73 billion that's going to power infrastructure and grid automation, almost a third of that's going for clean energy technology. So when you start thinking of who should care about that, are all these companies that are produ producing solar panels that are doing projects in carbon capture and sequestration, all the technologies, all the, the components that are required, all the tubes, all the lines, all the cables, everything that is in those industries. This is any industry that's making something that, you know, even homes that can be tied down that are, you know, little devices for anchoring roofs to, you know, for natural disasters to companies that focus in on cyber attacks and have looked at utilities. I mean, you can really get into a lot of non-traditional clients now are going to have large pots of money to go after so anybody in the renewable energy sector, whatever type of technology they're looking at, really has a, a play, a larger play than they've had because 
the governments, even though they've subsidized this, it hasn't been to this extent. And most utilities can't afford to say, yeah, we're going to put in a bunch of clean energy technology because they can't push it to their end users to pay for. So we really have to think and going even on the digital side, the broadband, all these telecommunications companies that are public, private that are out there who are going to be the ones that are going to be putting the lines in the cable, you know, cables and whatever it might be, et cetera. So we can start to break down the types of people outside of just who could get the money, the types of companies that once the money is where, who, who it was awarded to can then compete to become the supplier or the execute what that money is for. I love that. Okay. So going back to the three buckets that, that we started talking about the first one, civil engineering, all of the roads, bridges, airports, and rail, your primary customer is going to be Department of Transportation and a little bit of commerce. I would suspect that the airports are going to fall under FAA, the ports will be under commerce, but a lot of that, and that this is the bulk of this funding, will be allocated to Department of Transportation and state and local entities. You, you agree with that? Mm-hmm. Yes. Then move it, moving into the utilities bucket, which again is power, infrastructure, broadband, drinking water, all these water issues. Now you're looking at the major, your major capture strategy, your, who your customer and decision makers will be, will really is going to be Department of Energy, EPA, a little bit of commerce, state and local, right? Yeah. Let me ask you about broadband. We have seen a lot of broadband work in our rural economic development initiatives. And do you think the funding and oversight is going to come out of commerce, probably EDA? Good question. I, I So of that broadband money, which was, geez, let's see, uh, $65 billion for broadband, 65%, so more than half of that is allocated, is designated, so allocated to connect underserved areas. So yeah. we'll get a better sense of who are the underserved areas, what that criteria looks like to be to be identified as an underserved areas. I mean, they play around a lot, different administrations on how they term it, but it's generally, you know, folks that, you know, meet a certain formula of the population base, et cetera. So 65% is going to be focused on that. So that that includes both rural and urban areas. And so we'll we'll have to filter out who is going to, you know, how that funding is going to be allocated to who and who are the and we can map out pretty, I think, pretty quickly the communities that fall under that criteria. So folks can start to talk to those communities and, and providers of services in those areas. I love it. Okay. And then the third bucket, transportation, public transit, rail, transportation safety. I guess we'd we'd lump electric vehicles in there maybe, I, I, I guess. I think so on this because their intent on electric vehicles is just to get the, you know, be focusing in on the charging structure as well as moving a lot of the current buses to, you know, net zero pollution. So that's where you're starting to 
you, you'll see a lot of that type of money filtering in and requirements into those agencies. So a lot of this will be transportation, state and municipal entities as the, the primary customer in this play, right? Huh? And then did you see specific appropriations? I know there's policy. Is there a specific appropriations in the act for some of the, the tangent things that we talked about, the policy issues like environmental. I know there is for water and soil. We talked about that. But how about other cleaning up Superfund sites and things like that? And then resiliency. And you also mentioned cyber. Yeah. So I think you're going to see it like for airports and waterways, you're going to see a focus on communities that are addressing the climate related impacts. And so there is money that will be going for waterways to counter extreme weather, for bridges to counter extreme weather, for roads to counter extreme weather. So you're going to see that language really in a variety of areas that will probably be prioritized as well as resiliency, you know, to counter challenges. So just keep in mind that that is going to be, you know, how much is how much in the end is the requirement will be is one thing. But to really the narrative, I think, on a lot of these projects is to start to show how and, I, and we can do up a little thing on some of the policy related issues of kind of the narrative on that to ensure that, you know, that you're speaking the, the language that is likely going to be driven through all the requirements for these for these monies. I love it. I've got a couple of other questions that I'd like your opinion on this. One is this electric vehicle issue. Tell me again what the the total funding was for electric vehicle, like $15 billion. Yeah, $15 billion, That includes infrastructure for it and buses and transit. So the terminology that they're using is they want to build a national network of EV chargers along highways and in rural and disadvantaged communities. So think of it as a means to which that they do a variety of uh, in, you know investments in those areas. And then the second thing is tied to how do you get buses, particularly school and transit buses to be electric and even going into the aspect of transportation by ferry. So there is gonna be a lot of investment of who, who can come up with the best design and best type of technology for charging across the country. And those companies that are really playing a role in that are, there's a lot of opportunity there. And although it's one of the smallest categories that you mentioned, it's only 15 billion of the 1.3 trillion. Think about, this is a commodity for the most part, right? It is a commodity. This is a lot of money that is going to be spent on electric vehicles. Remember, we did a project a few years ago on electric vehicles with a client, with a very large Fortune 500 client. And our team did just fantastic work in researching what public entities have own vehicles. So exactly what you were talking about, you, you think about the Department of Defense and how many vehicles the Department of Defense owns, how many vehicles these other federal entities like HHS and state municipal entities, there are thousands of 
vehicles that are owned by these entities, do you see that a lot of this $15 billion will be divided between federal and state entities that have huge fleets of vehicles today? Is that is that how you see that being allocated? Well, I do know for schools, no question. So I do think it ties into for buses, et cetera. So I'll have to dig deeper into the, you know, the policy. I know it's really, still early. I know we're yeah. still trying to just, I, I think what you've done and you and your team have done this amazing job of breaking down these thousands of pages and line items to a few key buckets. I love, I love what you're doing with this. So. Well, one thing, Sean, that I failed to mention, because it is, it, it doesn't show up as a large amount per se, if you're thinking of the, under the core infrastructure, and this is on the renewable and grid automation and yes. getting into some of these variety of things and broadband, there is going to be about $5 billion for initiatives through ARPA, through advanced research projects, and for grants to, that would be company specific, that would be research foundations that are, you know, universities that are focusing on early stage work. So if you're thinking of, uh, of a lot of the renewable energy, a lot of the electric vehicle, batteries, et cetera, just in that little pot, excluding how those fall into other pots, they've allocated $5 billion to do that. And that's where you would just come in that when we're talking clusters, collaborations, and companies that have the greatest thing, but it's the size of a, you know, a small bottle cap. How do you make that bottle cap into something that can power a community or whatever it might be, or charge a community? Those are, that's about $5 billion. So you're talking hundreds of millions of dollars a year going out for companies to, to compete for these projects that these agencies are going to be doing. It's just, it's remarkable. So you're saying, some of the ARPA and Build Back Better funding will also be linked into the new into this new act. Yeah, and they're calling it they it would be the advanced. So rather than you know advanced research projects agency, so ARPA, yeah, ARPA. but they're saying for infrastructure. So five billion dollars. So just think of ARPA I. ARPA I is for any company that has creative ideas to address utilities, transportation, you know, whatever it might be, that's going to be the incubator that's being, you know, close to $5 billion to be doing that type of work, excluding again, folks that already have, are in those sectors that have developed stuff that can be used immediately to further, you know, renewable, clean energy technology, et cetera, or broadband investments, whatever it might be. Before we go into the strategy for public and private entities. Let me, I want to just talk about water because this really is one of your subject matter expertise. And uh, a lot of your career was looking at energy and natural resources, which is such a, is going to be such a big part of this. Do you want to talk for a minute about uh, water in particular? I'm really interested in your thoughts on some of these initiatives tied to drinking water, soil and water remediation, and water 
storage in Western states. I just, all of those things are really unique in, I think, in, in incorporating the policy and the appropriation into this overall bill. I, I mean, we, we've been looking at a lot of water issues for years and have worked water initiatives for years. Do you want to talk about the water element of this for a minute? Because I think it, it, it is a fascinating element of this act. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're looking at what arguably falls in that category, it's close to the 266 billion impacts associated with, you know, how water addresses a variety of those plays a lot in the type of technologies you use for renewable energy. So when you're talking about, you know, improving your, your grid, water is input into many things. And people don't recognize that in production of energy, you know, whether whatever type of energy it might be, the amount of water that's needed. So if you're talking about a particular solar technology that depends upon water for a variety of reasons, then you have to start thinking about where you're going to be placing that, where you can, where you have a water supply. So I just want people to understand that water is embedded in so many things. And in, and in many cases, just when you're looking at your you know, business operations, one of the larger costs is water, heating of water, et cetera, and movement of water. So when we talk water infrastructure, in this case, you're, it's estimated, you know, 50 some odd billion dollars going towards uh, funding to, and they use words like modernized water infrastructure. And that gets into, we have a lot of systems that are for a variety of reasons. I mean, we still have in certain areas, water systems that are wood-based that are moving water down, you know, kind of flumes. And so it's, it's really interesting when you, and some of them are actually, you can't upgrade them because they're historic. So when you get into the types of projects that they're going to be addressing, a lot of it will be state driven through state revolving, you know, funds mm -hmm. process, but a lot of the infrastructure is needing to be modernized. And so anything that can be done from you know, moving water through communities without upsetting the neighborhood above to taking out lead pipes to how do you improve the efficiency or operations for facilities that are using a lot of water, et cetera. But it ties in what, what where a lot of people kind of don't recognize is that a lot of the environmental remediation that we're doing is to ensure that you don't have these challenges with the, you know, the chemicals or whatever may have been used getting into the groundwater. And we see that a lot throughout the country where you have what they call Superfund sites, which, you know, right now, I, if I understand right there, I think there's over 1200 of these sites that basically they, they're unusable for a variety of reasons right. until you, uh, you reclaim them. And a lot of them are projects that have been abandoned. Right. So, the number that they use quite often is about about almost a quarter of the population lives within two to three miles of a Superfund site. So when you start talking about a quarter, you know, you know, a fifth to you know a quarter of the population living by these, and if there is degradation of the soils or water that comes about it, then you have the costs associated with cleaning it up. So I see environmental remediation, you know tied 
not necessarily to building out the water infrastructure, but to ensuring that water infrastructure can handle what might be in the system or coming into the system as we go along. So that's the environmental remediation with water infrastructure is close to $100 billion. Right. Over the, right. You know, so it's a lot of money going I mean, into we, these types we, of- we sort of brushed over this in, in the beginning, but what's incredible, it's, it's actually, water is actually the biggest part of the new spending of that 550 billion in new spending you think about drinking water at 55 billion western water storage and i want to ask you about that in a minute was uh, 50 billion and then remediation was 20 billion it was that right 21 billion yeah. Remediation was $47 billion. Gosh. So, I mean, we're talking about- I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. That's environmental uh, resiliency. Yeah, remediation was $21 billion. $21 billion. Okay. So we're we're talking about $126 billion. It's actually, I I mean, I don't know how much of that remediation is, is soil, but I would suspect the majority of it is water. So you're talking about- $126 $126 billion of new spending just going to water. That's more than the roads and bridges. It's more than the A&E work. So this is one of the biggest water initiatives that I can remember in my career. I, don't, you, I know you've worked a lot of policy around water. I think it's, a, it's an incredible opportunity. And I cannot ever remember another policy or appropriation of this magnitude? Maybe you can. Yeah. So when you're looking at what we consider your basic water infrastructure, which is just what you see and what you use, what they've done under this bill is they, there's a basic formula that goes out to states that funding formula that states are going to get every year. And what they did in this bill is they increased it by three times what the historical, you know, appropriation has been for these state resolving, revolving funds. So states are going to see immediately a lot of money going into what many of us think is your you know, water infrastructure. But then you get into you know, priority areas, you know, really focusing in on some of these areas where we should have been modernizing and just haven't had the funding for. And then as you described, a lot of the environmental remediation is for you know, soils and brownfield, brownfield sites. But what we have found is the reason why you got to clean those up is to make people livable and you know can improve the environment but a lot of this does leak through into the groundwater and so it's directly impacted by these sites of which is you know described where you have you know close to you know a quarter of the population living by these one other thought on the water uh, technologies which there's a variety of folks people work with that are really looking at how do you get these chemicals out of these waters or how do you take the chemicals out of the water and and you see that along the Colorado River all the way into California that there's high levels at different parts of the Colorado River of different you know both <laughs> chemicals that are are created naturally and then chemicals that were created for for a variety of reasons that are found themselves into the river and then found themselves into a lot of the ground basins particularly in southern California so so you do see direct impacts on what people are paying for water by how expensive it is, if you can even do it, taking out the chemicals that have leached into the water systems. Well, and 
I mean, that's a great point. Think about a lot of what DOD is dealing with in the PFAS and PFAS uh, remediation. It ultimately is all it's all water. I mean, you think about the, some of these installations and the challenges that they have in remediation, but ultimately that's going to be a, a, a water issue. So that'll be very interesting to watch in how that uh, huge amount of funding is allocated because it does it, and it overlaps right into drinking water, into the into the remediation itself. Well, and Sean, even a step further on that is they have you know water is sucked up into the food we eat, and so you have a variety of folks that argue that they're starting to see issues associated with food production based upon what the plants are drinking and what then we're consuming. And so it has, there's just a lot of science that is growing dramatically, but it's, and from a policy perspective, you can imagine when you start tying in policy issues of certain, you know, certain things we're seeing in humans, certain things we're seeing, you know, in in other populations that, you know, water is playing a role uh, in in those uh, discussions. No, no question. This has been such a great discussion, and there's still a lot that we need to cover. But just quickly, could you talk about this huge amount of funding that will be going to Western Water Storage? I, You and I both have followed the drought in the West now for uh, whatever, whoever, there's a lot of arguments on what how long this has been going on and what what really constitutes the Western drought, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. But I mean, there's there's clearly this drought. Uh, We have supported a lot of the and consulted for a lot of entities that have had response to the fires, to the other fallout from this drought. I'm so fascinated by this $50 billion going into Western water storage. What do you think that looks like in your mind? I, because Just because of your history and, and uh, your expertise in Western water issues. So I'll kind of start historically and then kind of, and, and I need a I've not seen the specific projects yet for the Western Reclamation, but I can give you an idea of what's been happening. So a lot of the West was developed. Why the water is in the West is because of these reclamation projects. So you had, you know, in order to get people to live in the Western United States, they had the federal government had to build these massive projects. And so they invested at that time heavily in the dams along and power facilities along the Colorado River, Columbia River, you can name almost every major river system. Reclamation. Yeah, every, your reclamation project is in almost every re- Midwest and, recl- and, and Western states. Yep. So what's happened is a lot of those were built 100 years ago. I mean, we're talking some of the first major infrastructure projects the United States built were to build these projects so people had power and water as they moved west in order to ensure that the United States people lived in the entire United States. So without them, we wouldn't have, and so the argument is without these projects, you wouldn't have large populations like we do now. The issue now has occurred is some people have argued that the traditional way of developing water 
isn't good. And you see that through people who criticize dams for impacting endangered species, dams for impacting recreation, dams for, you know, so you can start to go through a whole list of policy related issues that different administrations try to address. So when we talk about development of water infrastructure going forward, a lot of the conversations been is how do you take and reclaim water that is sitting in areas where the water might have a variety of contaminations? Or how do you improve the efficiency of water operations? Or how do you move water from one source that currently has endangered species issues to another source to move the water elsewhere? And that entails you know, investment. And to give you an idea, I mean, there's always talk about the, you know, conversation about moving water under, and, uh, you know, right, right now what happens in California, you move water through river systems to then go to large pumps that move the water over a mountain down to Southern California. So two thirds of the water in California is developed in Northern California and two thirds of the water is needed in Southern California. So in order to get it there, you have to pump it. But in pumping it, you're impacting a variety of things. The flows of water coming into the bay you know, from the ocean, you're impacting water coming through the rivers and you're impacting every time you turn those pumps on, it's taking, it's creating an, an, a, you know, arguably an unnatural process for that system, but they need it in order to move it. So a lot of the conversation when we talk about Western water infrastructure is how do you do things that are smarter and better and cost-effective and the, the, and we, there's a variety of solutions, but you still have this tug of war between people that say, we just need more storage on rivers. It's easier to put a system there <laughs> than to pump water down into a, what we think is an aquifer that's safe or to build expensive reclamation projects, you know, desalination. So you have desalination of ocean water and you have desalination of brackish water. So those are generally on land. So how do you take water salts out of waters that are in New Mexico or Arizona or California, recycle it and then use it for either drinking or for watering lands or agriculture. So, so those are all the types of things that when you hear about Western water reclamation projects through Department of Interior, which is, is going to be close to $28 billion in funding going to Department of Interior. So there's a lot of heavy investment there from both improving the operations at facilities and rethinking how we have built projects to improve the efficiency of water to you know protect the environment protect you know a variety of things and so those are the policy debates you're going to see as that language moves and that those projects move along that is really of this act that water element is going to be fascinating to watch there is a huge amount of funding going into this, but there's going to be some real challenges in working through the environmental issues, all of the policy issues, the water treaty issues with the with the rivers, tribal issues. I mean, it is this is going to be a, just an absolutely fascinating decade long study in what's going to happen for commerce, policy, resiliency, environmental. It, it really is a, I think the people that I've talked with about the act and the funding, they've glossed over this water piece. And I just want to reemphasize, this is a big part of 
this act and the appropriation tied to it that is is going to be so interesting to watch. Do not discount or, or gloss over that that element of the act itself. Okay, so I, I we really wanted to talk about now the strategy tied to it. And while this is still early in the process, let's just talk about some an early capture strategy and capture planning, both if you're a public entity and if you're a private entity. We talked a little bit about identifying your customers and starting down that path. And really, in both cases, if you're a public entity or if you're a private entity, you need to be building good capture strategies and capture plans because how, as we had talked about, how a lot of this funding is is going to be worked is through grants. That means you better have now, you, you better be planning for how are we going to capture this funding and who is the customer, what is the decision chain that, that needs to happen and starting now, it's not too early to start in writing your grants for this. I mean, talk about, I think the capture piece of this is going to be very similar for both public and private entities. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Sure. I mean, again, I'll just use the section on, you know, kind of the, I don't want to say the utility side of what's happening in this. Every single company that does you know, broadband or, you know, sort of, you know, the internet, et cetera, they should care about this because there is more money than ever coming into this. When you're looking at cities and uh, communities that are in these underserved areas, there is going to be a large focus on getting them utilities as well as, you know, surface transportation related projects as well. So when you're thinking about who should care uh, in the energy side, think about every utility, think about every company that provides utilities with something. And just alone of the 20, you know, $21 billion going to clean energy technology. Absolutely. So that is a lot of money for, you know, in, in, in highlighting, you know, hundreds of companies that focus in on clean energy right now. That's a whole host of companies that could become who should be care about this and where we could work with them on their municipalities as well as states or the utilities where they're going to be focusing in on. In addition to any company that has research arms or research foundations or cluster work we want to do that is energy related, cyber related, resiliency related, you know, dealing with, you know, things in which we see as climate's changing, what are what are clever ways to approach these challenges? I mean, we're talking billions of dollars to companies that previously were not as competitive as others because there wasn't funding for them. This bill opens up a lot of that. And Josh, I I love what you said about clusters. We have done so much work over the last 10 years, more, 20 years in cluster development and ecosystem development. And some of the, these earlier episodes and future episodes that we're going to push, it is tied to this concept of ecosystem and 
cluster development. There is such an opportunity if you are a public entity to build out these ecosystems in in engineering, in construction, in all of the A&E, transportation, the port system, broadband, cyber, water, transportation, these buckets that we talked about, building clusters where you have large and small entities coming together to create jobs. And this is what this is about. So if you are a public entity, if you are a state municipal entity and you are looking at how do I create jobs in a rural part of my state or I'm a economic development entity in a state municipal organization, this is what we're talking about, creating ecosystems around around these buckets, civil engineering, utilities, transportation, and then some of the, the policy things, environmental resiliency, technology tied to you know, things like cyber and electric vehicles. That's the real opportunity. That's the kind of thinking and the preparation that we mean, if you're a public entity, creating a capture strategy and capture plan around this $1.2 trillion of funding. Agreed? Sean, in that area, just alone, if you're looking at arguably what could be considered falling into the cluster category, is $5 billion going, you know, just alone for the Advanced Research Projects Agency for infrastructure. So anything, and I don't know how they're going to be letting out the funding for this, but it's going to be universities that can compete, companies, foundations that are looking at these kind of these concepts that are game changers or concepts that, you know, could could lead to a variety of innovations. And I think the clusters is a great, great area for that. And, and again, that's even for, for $5 billion, I mean, that's that's a lot of money. And we're talking, I think, like you've described well, a company getting $10 million, $5 million to examine something and to further develop it is a lot of money. Well, imagine $5 billion over the right. next uh, several years going for that. That's There's going to be a lot of opportunity to go after that money. And also tied to this is the relationships that if you're both a public and or a private entity that you're going to need inside these organizations. And that's that's really our specialty and our expertise was really the foundation of the LSI methodology over the last 50 years, penetrating the Department of Transportation, EPA, Department of Energy, DOD, HHS, DHS, Commerce, you know, SBA, Department of Interior, those entities that are going to have oversight and responsibility for managing and reporting back to the Congress on job creation. That's the other piece of this. Who is your customer? Who is the decision maker within these entities? and penetrating that in preparation for capturing this business. So anything else that you have in mind with capture? I mean, there's a lot to this. We're sort of consolidating this into a few minutes of discussion, but anything else in capture? 
I think we can outline, go through specific, you know, these broader categories and outline a strategy for each one so that people can start to think about how they, who they can approach and how to approach it. Awesome. Now, moving into the proposal phase, one of the things that we keep hearing from a lot of our contacts and and connections, our our relationships inside of these entities is that they're just going to replicate what happened with the CARES Act and the and the stimulus funding where billions of dollars were contracted to public and private entities to government entities and businesses as grants and the reason that they did this was they didn't have time to do a 12-month procurement cycle to to contract under the FAR and build it out of a whole acquisition strategy plan and build out, you know, industry days and and the typical FAR-based acquisition and and were accustomed to. So how they did that and, and the entity that was really amazing in this was HHS, Health and Human Services. They were granting billions of dollars and obligating billions of dollars on a 30-page proposal for these grants. And so what we've heard is a lot of these entities are already saying that's how we're going to obligate these funds to state municipal entities and to private industries as well. So I think it's going to be a different proposal approach instead of us building out these very technical 500-page proposals, 1,000-page proposals, It's that's not going to be the case. It, most of this is going to be 30-page proposals, which we can, our team is has really become the leaders in this industry in providing proposal development consulting. Because of our capture work, because of our integration into these entities, we're then able to build winning proposals to capture this funding through these grants. And this is a, the grant capture and grant proposal is a discipline unlike other proposal development. And you want to talk about that for a minute? Yeah, sure. So as you described well is that, you know, how this funding is going to go out, particularly to this, you know, and it will be several things. It will be grants based upon what we talked about, formula grants. And those are given out every year. And they basically are given to states and you know state and local governments on formulas and metrics. Those aren't changing. Those will go out and a state will get more than they have in the past, of course, but it will go out based upon a formula. The second area are these, what we call grants that are competitive. These are what we need to kind of need. A, well, the first one as well, but the second one is the, they're going to be going out awarded to state and local governments based on a competitive application process. So that's where we can play a role as well. There's going to be a lot of money going out to capture this type of funding for specific focus areas. And in some agencies, that's more than what a state gets just through their current allocation. And then you have just other way money is going out that are funding things. And we talked about the, you know, the highway trust fund, which states get pursuant, you know, to, you know, what they've already getting and then okay. loans. Air so what port, the port funding. Yeah. So what we want to be focused, I think once we, once we recognize how that money is going to be allocated competitively, 
we can then work for, with a variety of entities with the appropriate state and local entities when that money is being allocated to then go after that. And it's not, I think that even if you're a small municipality or you're a, you're a small economic development organization or even a small business and you're thinking, oh my goodness, how do I tap into some of these funds? It's not going to take a lot of effort and a long, long period of time to put this together. Of most of these proposals that we have worked in the last year and a half, two years, have been 30-page proposals, and they have obligated billions of dollars in funding around a 30-page proposal. So get a hold of us and, and let us know how we can help you if you're, a, if you're either a public entity or a, a business. And then if you're a business, one of the things that I keep saying, you know, we're out of time on this, but I, one of the things is a business that you need to be cognizant about is, and while it's still early, what we're anticipating, what we expect is all of these entities are going to have small business requirements. Many of these these grants or contracts will be small business set aside, 8A set aside, tribally set aside. So if you're a tribal entity, if you're a 8A corporation, if you're a small business, be thinking about that. If you're a large business, as part of your overall capture strategy and plan, be thinking about this funding that will be small business set aside, 8A set aside, tribally set aside, and all of the other, there's probably going to be some SDVO, uh, small disadvantaged veteran-owned business set-asides as well. But you need to be prepared for that. If you're a large business, how do you partner with one of those entities? If you're a small business or an 8A or tribal entity, or if you're a tribal nation, even that's a whole nother discussion that we probably could dedicate a whole episode just to to what are the tribal nations going to see from this because I expect it'll be huge. Any thoughts on that element? Because this will be a big part of this, as you know. No, completely uh, concur with what you've said there. There's going to be plenty of different types of set-asides for different populations, as well as populations who can win the money, but right. populations of who can only, where the money has to be allocated within an area. So we can focus in on all those as well. And then we haven't talked about program execution, but this will be a big part of that as well, especially in the job creation piece of that. That'll go into some of our social impact work, our demographic work with refugees, with the homeless, the displaced workers, veterans and military spouses, our tribal entities that we had talked about. There's a lot of demographic work that as a public entity and even as as a private entity that we're really positioned to, to support well. This, why I'm excited about this for our company, for our clients, 
in both the public and private sectors is it really touches every element in the LSI toolbox. It touches strategy, process, training, all the capture, which is going to be a huge part of this. Proposal development, program execution, our economic development work, social impact, just the job creation across all of those entities, all of those uh, disciplines, I think is going to be a huge opportunity. So anything else as we as we wrap this up, Josh? We've no, covered that's a good. lot. We have covered a lot. And I knew this is what you and I were going to end up going through in, in this. Let me just, I, I know there's a lot of people, even in our organization, that are very concerned about what does this mean long term? This We've spent now $4 trillion in recovery from COVID. What does this look like? What can, I mean, as I'm an economist and think like an economist, I'm just, I'm an economist at heart. So I'm always thinking of this long-term impact. What does this mean in 50 years? I'm not really sure what that, what it means in, in 50 years, but let me just offer a, an observation. Two weeks ago, I was in Iceland and Iceland is a, it's an interesting country. It's a, it's an island. It's a, an island that has 350,000 residents, but it's a good crucible for some history and in a lot of things, energy, environmental issues, economic development and social impact. But one of the things that I didn't understand was that in, in a, as I met with a lot of individuals in Iceland, Iceland was historically the poorest country in Europe until World War II. It was such a poor country. There was, there was nothing. There were no natural resources there. There was no commerce. It was all agriculture. It was consistently one of the poorest countries. And what changed that? I kept asking I, over and over, what changed Iceland from being one of the poorest countries to one of the most affluent countries now in Europe? And they and the history. I mean, they've they've had a lot of economic ups and downs over the years. The financial collapse that happened a few years ago. But I can tell you now, they're one of the the most affluent countries per capita in Europe. What changed was the investment that Iceland received from the Marshall Plan following World War II, and they played a very minor role in the in World War II, but they allowed both the UK and the US to establish a, a presence there. And as a result of that, they did receive some Marshall Plan funding. That funding transformed Iceland and it was the economic stimulus that turned them into one of the richest per capita countries in the world. So I'm not really sure what's going to happen as an economist, I think, and, and this work that we do in business development, economic development, and social impact. I've got a lot of ideas, but uh, just keep that in mind that that was a real example of investment, infrastructure investment that was very similar to 
the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that we've discussed here uh, that was transformational. And maybe this will be for a lot of rural entities and, and historically depressed entities across the United States. I'm, I'm optimistic that, that that'll be the case. Okay, anything else, Josh? I pre- appreciate your work on this and your team's work. This was phenomenal. And we'll just we'll continue to have updates on how to build clusters around this act and funding, how if you're a business or large business, small business or tribal nation, tribal entity, how you can capture this funding and create jobs, which is really what this is about. Anything else that uh, you want to discuss as we wrap up? No, thanks for having me. Josh, thank you. I appreciate it. So everyone, we, we've had a, we had a lot of, we covered a lot of ground. There was a lot uh, to this. If you are a public entity, if you are a private entity, if you have an interest in any of these services or commodities that we've discussed tied to the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, if you need help with information in the Congress, in any in penetrating any of the agencies, in building a capture strategy, a capture plan, in responding to the these proposals for grants and contracts, these RFPs that are going to be dropping, there'll be thousands of RFPs tied to this that are going to drop and and the funding will be allocated through these grants. You're going to need proposal support. Let us know. And then program execution. If you're interested in any of our social impact work around demographic job creation or geographic ecosystem development, please connect with us. We will get back to you quickly. Thanks again, Josh. This was incredible. I appreciate your work on this. Thanks.